You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with marine ecologist Dominic McAfee. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Growing up in Australia, a lot of people get the opportunity to spend time living by the beach. The vast majority of Australians live within 50 kilometres of the sea. And so from a young age, I've been going to the beach and there's always so much majesty and wonder associated with the sea because we obviously can't see beneath the waves. And I remember as a young kid playing on beaches and seeing all sorts of wonderful creatures being washed ashore after storms, etc. And I've always been captivated by the sea. I never, ever thought that I'd have the opportunity to work as a marine ecologist or to work with the sea, but it's an absolute privilege that I get to do that now really intensively since the Industrial Revolution and the invention of industrialised dredge fishing, where we drag nets along the seafloor and indiscriminately remove everything that's down there. But oyster reefs were one of the primary habitats on temperate coastlines, cool water coastlines, all around the world until about 200 years ago. And it's only relatively recent knowledge piecing the puzzle together of what we've lost, that we've been able to recognise that we've lost something like 85% of oyster reefs globally. In Australia, it's over 99%. We've absolutely smashed this ecosystem to smithereens. It covered something like 7,000 kilometres of coastline. And the flat oyster reef, for example, the flat type of oyster that we work with, They were completely removed from the Australian mainland, over about 5,000 kilometres of reef destroyed in a very short period of time. And because of the intensity with which the coastlines were modified following European settlement of Australia, they haven't been able to come back naturally. We don't really think of oysters as having an important environmental role, but they do so many different things. They provide structure, much like trees in a forest or coral reefs in a tropical sea. They provide this complex, convoluted habitat. And we think of oysters as these small organisms, a few centimetres long. But before we destroyed these reefs, some of them were recorded being over four metres high. They would stretch for tens of kilometres squared, just an individual reef, this undulating habitat, metres above the seafloor. And you'd have networks of these reefs, which would cover astonishingly large areas. The filter feeders, that's how they eat. So they just remove the tiny little particles from the water. Column. And one oyster can filter something like between 100 and 200 litres of water a day. If you multiply that by the billions or trillions of oysters that would have made up one of these oyster reefs, that's an incredibly efficient filtration pump for the coastline. We refer to them as the kidneys of the coastline because they could filter astonishing amounts of water. And when they've been lost from really large estuaries, a great example is the Chesapeake Bay in North America, the largest estuary in North America. They had enormous oyster reefs. And when they were lost, the entire ecosystem went through what we call a regime shift, where it transitioned from this bottom benthic habitat, so a habitat dominated by seagrasses and kelps and oysters. The loss of the filtration function of oysters meant that there was a lot of sediment buildup, light can't penetrate to the seafloor, and then it transitioned to a pelagic system where jellyfish and other organisms are able to dominate the ecosystem. So the filtration function is just one important thing that oysters do. A lot of my research has been up and down the east coast of Australia where I looked at the habitat that oysters would provide 
invertebrate community and, and fish communities. And one sort of baseball-sized clump of oysters could easily house over a thousand other invertebrates belonging to a hundred plus species. These are invertebrate megacities, and those invertebrates are the detritivores and the grazers that underpin ecosystem function and nutrient cycling, and also the broader coastal food web. A lot of Fish would feed on oyster reefs and also use them as nursery habitats. So if you think of the Great Barrier Reef or any coral reef, the oysters are the cold water equivalent to the coral. They provide the structure, which provides the foundations for thriving ecosystems, but oysters also filter the water. So they do a heck of a lot. We've lost over 99%, thousands of kilometers, and this is an ecosystem that was sustainably used by Indigenous Australians for at least 5,000 years, probably longer, the shell middens going back for 10,000 years, a really important part of the socioeconomics of coastal life around Australia for a long, long time. So it's no surprise that when Europeans arrived, they also relied on this resource. They just harvested it so much that it collapsed. And within a few generations of that collapse, the late 1800s, we had forgotten that these reefs ever existed. So it's only in recent times that we've discovered maps showing how big the reefs were, covering hundreds of kilometres squared individual reefs, certainly in South Australia. And there's now a real motivation to bring those back. And this is a first for modern marine management and modern science in Australia. We don't, we didn't know how to bring these oyster reefs back. So one of the important things you need to do is to provide appropriate substrate, rocks or something hard on the seabed to allow the oysters to, if they can find this substrate, to settle on it and start to regenerate that habitat. Historically, they settled on other oysters, but they're all gone. So we can put boulders in the water, rocks in the water, or dead oyster shell, and hope that the oysters find it, but there's no guarantee that they will. So one of the things we've been doing is trying to understand how an oyster interprets its environment, how it finds a suitable place to live. And far from being passive drifting animals. And far from being passive drifting animals, they are brainless invertebrates, so there might not be a lot going on upstairs, but they do have rudimentary eyes, so they use sight a little bit to choose a place to live. They are able to interpret olfactory cues, so they use smell. They can smell other oysters and other things that are an indication of a good place to live, and they can follow those smells. But at the broader scales, they use sound. And we've been actually playing healthy marine sounds with underwater speakers to attract oysters towards these reefs. So when the historical native habitat was lost, it also lost the sound that was associated with those reefs. That sound created by the millions of animals that live in amongst the oysters. They live in amongst that complex habitat and they create a lot of noise as it turns out. Most of that noise can be attributed to snapping shrimp, which snap the claw shut really, really fast and make this really intense popping sound. When you have thousands of those or millions of those aggregated in a small area, that sound can be really intense and travel quite far. And a lot of animals use that sound to find a suitable place to live. Uh, so we've been actually recording the healthiest sounds we can find in the area and then playing them back with speakers that we make ourselves. And it's an incredibly potent tool. Playing sound has increased the amount of oysters that find and settle on our reefs by at least five times. 
It seems intuitive that if we're going to restore ecosystems, we need to restore multiple species and multiple habitat types for them to function the way we hope that they will function. Nevertheless, 85% of restoration practitioners focus on single species approaches. It's from a practical perspective, easier to do single species restorations, but there's not a single ecosystem in the world where you have a single species. Even giant kelp forests have a lot of other habitat structuring organisms living within and on top those, those kelp. So the prevailing mindset is that if we bring back the key foundation species that creates the habitat and then allows other species to colonize the area, by bringing them back, it'll bring back those other species. But that's not necessarily the case because the connectivity of ecosystems has been absolutely destroyed in many environments around the world. So a good example is from the oyster restoration work I've been working on. When the first reefs we constructed in Southern Australia, it was the first large-scale reef restoration in the Southern Hemisphere. Not long ago, 2017, we really didn't know what we were doing. So the boulders that we used to provide hard foundations to bring back the oysters that we're interested in were laid down in the middle of winter. And at that time, there were no oysters in the water column. They breed when water temperatures get a little bit warmer and then through summer. But putting those boulders down, on a heavily modified coastline where you've got runoff and increased sediment loads from urbanization of coastal areas. Those conditions facilitate something called turf algae, a weed that dominates modified coastal ecosystems all around the world. And if you put boulders or something hard in the water, it can smother them within a matter of weeks and then exclude other organisms. Ecologically, it's not really valuable. It's not great fish habitat. It's not fantastic for other organisms. So one of the techniques we used going forward was a multi-species approach where we combined the provision of that substrate with kelp transplants. We've also lost kelp forests all around these coastlines. And that kelp naturally removes turf algae, providing turf-free habitat substrate for the oysters to settle on. That's just an example of what we call positive species interactions, where historically, throughout much of the 20th century, the prevailing theory in ecology is that species are always in competition. And that concept has carried over into restoration practice, where we plant single species to limit competition. What we know now, based on fantastic research over the last 25, 30 years, is that many interactions are positive between different species. So you get things like oysters and seagrass benefiting each other, improving each other's growth. Oysters do the filtering, they reduce the amount of particles in the water, allows sunlight to penetrate further, it allows seagrass to grow more, that protects the oysters from predators more. You get these feedbacks where you have this positive interaction and both organisms, or at least one organism, profits from that interaction. So I think it's really important that when we're designing restorations and conservation works, we think about those interactions between different species rather than taking a human mindset of, okay, let's limit competition and just try to get this one organism to do really well, because it's destined to fail if we take those approaches which don't represent anything that you find in nature. Something that I think about a lot, being somebody who writes about conservation optimism, which is a really potent 
or way of grabbing people's attention. But there's a lot of nuance in the use of optimism. You need to certainly balance it with an appropriate amount of pessimism or realism because things are not good. The state of the environment is quite terrible in many ways. But at the same time, you need to take a historic perspective when we think about where we are at the moment, where we're going, and very importantly, where we've been. And a lot of habitats have been smashed, certainly over the last 200 in particular. And yet they still show resilience to come back given the opportunity. And I think that's where a lot of the optimism comes from. Despite the fact that we weren't looking after the environment at all, or not much. And when I say we, I'm talking about large Western society, which has influenced much of the way we interact with the environment these days. We are discovering that with a little bit of attention and a bit of investment to try and help these ecosystems come back, they can come back quite quickly, particularly in the marine environment. So we've destroyed oyster reefs, but within 2.5 years of starting one of the first restorations of the coastline where I live, we've restored an extinct ecosystem. I mean, that's a phenomenal outcome. And there are those success stories, bright spots, as we call them, all around the world with all sorts of different ecosystems emerging because people are investing themselves, good people from community-led action to top-down governance. There's a lot of activity happening to try and repair the environment. The backdrop is the Anthropocene, where things have become quite dire. In many cases, we are facing a biodiversity crisis and the environment is rapidly changing. But the environmental movement has gained so much momentum over the last few decades. And the United Nations Decade on Ecosystem Restoration is a great example of how we're now seeing these massive global commitments to repair nature. We're beginning to appreciate that a healthy planet is essential to healthy humanity. So whereas things are bad, there's a lot to be excited about. And I remember when I went to school, there was recycling, for example, wasn't really a thing. Nobody recycled anything. Everything just went to the waste. And that was in the 90s. And within a very short period of time, recycling picked up and there was the opportunity to reduce your waste because a lot of it was being recycled. Now, whether or not they're doing a good job recycling is another matter entirely. But the fact that there has been really rapid social change in a very short period of time gives hope that we can make a really meaningful impact over the next decades to come because we're just at the beginning of really meaningful large-scale commitments. And in a short period of time, we've got some exciting wins. So part of the reproductive process for the oyster that I work on they are what we call sequential hermaphrodites. That means that they can switch between male and female almost on a daily basis. When you open them up, you can actually sometimes see egg and sperm next to each other. Incredibly dynamic organisms. They redefine in many ways how we think about sexuality. It's far more fluid with oysters. One of the amazing things about them, though, is that they were forming these reefs since before the time of the dinosaurs. Uh, following the mass extinction that paved the way for the dinosaurs to dominate the earth, oysters already looked as they do today. Of course, they've kept evolving because the pathogens are always changing, etc. 
but they pretty much settled on a incredibly successful life strategy 250 million years ago and have been forming reefs throughout that time. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.